The Looking Glass is brought to you by B2G Global Strategies, for whom I serve as CEO. B2G is an international security and investigations firm whose clients include some of the leading individuals and companies around the world. Our services include forensic accounting, anti-money laundering, cyber investigations, due diligence investigations, and security and threat assessments. You can learn more at b2gstrategies.com. We'd like to make special mention this episode of the podcast Good is in the Details. Good is in the Details is hosted by Gwendolyn Dolsky, PhD, and Rudy Sallow. Each episode of Good is in the Details features a discussion with an expert where we, the listeners, learn what we didn't know we didn't know. Join Gwendolyn and Rudy in gaining a bit of wisdom, health tips, lessons on self-improvement, and some laughter in between. I've now listened to several episodes of Good is in the Details, and I can attest that Gwendolyn and Rudy are a pleasure to listen to. They tend to select intriguing topics for discussion and bring a Socratic philosophy to the various subjects they address, which I find both appealing and educational. I would strongly recommend that you check out Good is in the Details at the first opportunity. It's available wherever you stream podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at the Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. We appreciate your support. Postscript. Throughout the many trials of Jeffrey McDonald, one notices a straining among both his defenders and his detractors for a smoking gun or silver bullet a single piece of evidence that proves definitively either that McDonald did or did not commit the crime. But all such supposed silver bullets, Helena Stokely, the pajama top, the black wool fibers, have been blanks. I want to point to one possible exception. You will remember that in episode 5 we noted an underappreciated moment from the grand jury proceedings when Victor Warheide told McDonald that tests had been conducted on the urine stain on the bottom bedsheet in the master bedroom and the results had revealed that Kimberly, not Kristen, had wet the bed. McDonald adamantly denied it. As we discussed in episode 5, were Warheide's claim to have proven accurate, it would have clinched the case against McDonald. After all, McDonald could not have been simply mistaken about which child wet the bed. He claimed from the first that it had been Kristen, the two-year-old, and denied, on the record, that Kimberly, the five-year-old, wet the bed with any irregular frequency for a girl her age. So if McDonald told investigators that Kristen wet the bed that night when in fact it had been Kimberly, he lied. And there is no conceivable reason for him to have lied except to have intentionally misled investigators, whom he, for some reason, did not want to know that his eldest daughter had wet the bed. This would constitute powerful evidence of McDonald's consciousness of guilt. It would suggest that the investigators were right about Jeffrey and Colette having gotten into an argument over one of the children's bedwetting. It would suggest that McDonald correctly calculated that such an argument would be thought less likely if the youngest, rather than the eldest, had wet the bed. After all, two-year-olds are expected to wet the bed. Two-year-olds wear diapers. But a five-year-old's wetting the bed might be a point of contention between two parents whose expectations of when bedwetting should cease differed. Among the many individuals CID investigators interviewed in the course of their reinvestigation of the McDonald murders was an army nurse with whom McDonald had reportedly had an affair. This woman happened to mention that, during her time with McDonald, he had disclosed to her that his older daughter had aneurysis, bedwetting, and he hoped that his younger child didn't also have the problem. This conversation strikes me as true. The technical language would be appropriate in a conversation between two people who worked in the medical field, as McDonald and the nurse both did. 
There is thus reason to believe that Kimberly did have a bedwetting problem and that, to some extent at least, it bothered MacDonald. According to an expert I consulted, while the Army CID lab could, in theory, have detected the relevant blood type antigens back in 1971, the likelihood of error would have been high, and verifying the result would require retesting using modern methodologies. According to a 1991 affidavit signed by Prosecutor Brian Murtaugh, the government, in 1979, cut out swatches of CID exhibit D-19, the bottom bedsheet from the master bedroom, then bisected the swatches, giving half to McDonald's defense attorneys and sending the other half to the FBI lab for their analysis as to whether the bloodstains were too old to test. Presumably the remainder of the bedsheet, including the section with the urine stain on it, remains in the possession of the government. Depending upon the storage conditions, the DNA on the sheet may have remained stable. If so, it could presumably be lifted from it, even 50 years later. Were the government to test the urine stain section of the sheet and find not Kristen's but Kimberly's DNA, we would know with virtual certainty that Jeffrey McDonald murdered his family. One last thing. In the course of my research for The Looking Glass, I came across a December 2018 Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision, which states the following in footnote 12. It has also been clarified in the post-conviction proceedings that the urine stain on the bottom sheet of the McDonald's master bed was matched to Kimberly, contrary to McDonald's claim that Kristen had wet the bed, end quote. Naturally, given what I have just related, I thought, aha, that's the case. But try as I might, I could not locate any government document validating this claim. I therefore reached out to the U.S. attorneys in North Carolina and asked for their assistance in locating this document. To his great credit, one of the U.S. attorneys, an individual well-versed in the history of the McDonald case, called me to discuss this matter. He then put a team on the task of chasing down the relevant document. And finally, he called me to relate that the footnote from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision was mistaken. No such definitive test of the urine stain sheet had been conducted. Again, were the government to test the urine stain section of the sheet and find not Kristen's, but Kimberly's DNA, we would know with virtual certainty that Jeffrey McDonald murdered his family.